This week's episode of the Religious Studies Project is again sponsored by Equinox Publishing. And this week we're featuring the book um, Identity Politics and the Study of Islam, Current Dilemmas in the Study of Religions, a very RSP book. And that's edited by our pal Matt Sheedy of the University of Manitoba. I'm certainly interested in reading that. And if you are, you can get a 25% discount off the book using the code religion if you order at equinoxpub.com. That's equinoxpub.com. Use the code religion for 25% off. Now, let's have the show. Welcome, dear listeners. This is Chris Cutter of the Religious Studies Project sitting in Oslo, uh, wondering where David is. Where are you, David? I can't see you. I'm sitting in my living room in Edinburgh, as usual. And uh, welcome, listeners, wherever you may be, to the Religious Studies Project. This week, we have uh, another episode recorded by Chris at the EASR, and this time it's on representations of religious studies in popular culture with Brian Collins and Kristen Toby. We talked a little bit about this last week, so without further ado, let's pass over and find out who represents us. Many of our discussions at the Religious Studies Project focus upon the complex intersections between religion, whatever that is, and popular culture. And justifiably so. Indeed, our good friend and colleague Vivian Azimus of Durham University has been producing a very interesting religion and popular culture podcast for a while now. But what about religious studies and the people who do it in popular culture? Uh, when I initially thought about this, I could certainly come up with a list of academics and bookish people who are somewhat problematically and wildly and accurately portrayed in popular culture from Archaeology's Indiana Jones and paleontology's Ross Geller to archivists Rupert Giles or linguistics Louise Banks. But I had to admit, I struggled to come up with many examples of the study of religion as we here at the Religious Studies Project know it. Luckily, today's guests have the question much more firmly in focus, given that, as they argue, popular cultural representations are much more likely to shape public perceptions about what the study of religion is and who does it than either direct experience in the classroom or statistics about graduation rates and job placements. We hope that you will agree that we should try to understand what these perceptions are. So joining me today to discuss this fascinating and important topic are professors Brian Collins and Kristen Toby. So first off, Brian, Kristen, uh, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank us. you. I'll just say a little bit about who you are. Brian Collins is Associate Professor and the Doctors Ram and Sushia Gawande Chair in Indian Religion and Philosophy at Ohio University. He's the author of The Head Beneath the Altar, Hindu Mythology and the Critique of Sacrifice, and various essays on Hinduism and the study of religion. And his second book, The Other Rama, Matricide and Varnicide in the Mythology of Parasurama, apologies for the pronunciation, is forthcoming from SUNY Press. And Kristen Toby is Assistant Professor of Religion and Social Sciences at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio. And her research treats religious identity formation and communication in the contemporary United States. And she's the author of Plowshares, Protest, Performance and Religious Identity in the Nuclear Age. So that's where you're coming from. Um, how did you get interested then? in this uh, this question of the representation of the study of religion in popular culture. You know, it doesn't necessarily sound like it your main research focus. So how, how do we get into that? Well, should I answer this one, Kristen? 
I think I, I started start this project and I asked I asked Kristen to join me and she graciously did and together we worked on the project. But it started out because and I think both of us had an idea at some point. We we study religion and we have to eventually tell people that we study religion and then see what they think we do. Very infrequently does someone have an actual idea of what the study of religion at a university entails. You know, I teach classes in Hinduism and Buddhism, and if you take both classes, students typically ask, you know, in the second class, why are you teaching this? I thought you were a Hindu. Or why are you teaching this? I thought you were a Buddhist, because I'm teaching mm. those classes. So the idea of studying religion as an academic subject is a mystery to most people. And I said, well, if they don't know, you know, what do they know, and where do they get the information? So I started, you know, I watch a lot of movies and TV, and I consume a lot of junk culture. So I saw a few people here and there who seemed to be basically doing what I do, but not in a way that I recognized. <laughs> and so I wanted to <laughs> take a, cast a wide net and see what impressions were out there. Yeah, I face the same thing, less from my students, because I teach at a Catholic school, so they're familiar with religion teachers, although not quite the same way I tend to do it. But I face this a lot with my research subjects, who are very suspicious of the idea of someone studying religion academically. Because the examples that they see, as Brian says, in pop culture are so very strange. So when Brian asked me to join this project, I was really excited for that reason. And also because my research usually deals with how religious people either present themselves or are presented. So to think about another piece of that, as you said, Chris, well, how is the field presented? How are the people who do it presented? That was very interesting to me in thinking about questions of identity. Wonderful. I should have said in the introduction, of course, that part of the reason we're having this uh, conversation is that the two of you have just uh, published an article, um, I say just June 2018, in Religious Studies Review, which is called From Middlemarch to the Da Vinci Code, Portrayals of Religious Studies in Popular Culture. So that will give a hint uh, to the listeners of um, where we might be going with our in-depth examples here. Yeah, how did you, you go about even finding your case study? Well, for me, I I did have to think about that. That's a methodological question that sort of we had to ask at the very beginning. And, and I compiled a list. I said, you know, Indiana Jones sort of reminds me of a person who does religion, but he's clearly identified as an archaeologist. So I wanted to find people that weren't clearly identified as archaeologists or classicists or anthropologists. There's a different article, two articles by anthropologists in literature and movies that we cite in our article, but seem to be studying something like what we do. So I eliminated people like parapsychologists and, um, and, and clearly identified historians. So it was that sort of middle ground. Robert Langdon is a religious symbologist, which is a totally made-up profession at a real university, whereas Casabon from Middlemarch, the other big example that we treat, is, uh, you know, what, what is he identified as, Kristen? He's identified as a scholar, but he's very clearly engaged in work that it would be recognizable for a historian of religions, very much in the mold of somebody from that era. So it's actually, in many ways, a pretty accurate depiction. But as far as garnering the case studies and garnering the examples, I remember Brian, was it years ago, maybe, or do I just have a skewed chronology on this, that you sent around an email to maybe half a dozen people just saying, hey, I'm thinking about this. What examples can you think of? And one thing that was really striking to me is that as those emails came back to you, 
most of them were from horror movies, right? The vast majority of these characters appear in scary movies, doing scary things, you know, summoning demons, whatever else. So as far as characters that we would actually recognize as doing the work that we do, Kasaban is one of very few examples. Yeah, that's what I did. I mean, I, I crowdsourced the research. It's easier to get someone else to do the research for you, I find. And so I came up with a list, and then I said, you know, basically like these people, anybody else you can think of, again, it's not identified clearly as something else. And so I did get a long list. There were comic books on there. There were podcasts on there. There were movies, mostly horror movies on there. Uh, there were a few novels on there. And some of the ones um, I ended up having to eliminate because they were the sort of archivist. So there were a lot of the archivists, like the Giles from Buffy yes. talk about. And that was a limit case for me. I didn't know whether to include those or not, but uh, I feel like they're somewhere in the mix, but for our article, we didn't discuss them. The archivist is kind of one of the, has a family resemblance to the archetype mm. of the religious studies person. But uh, we ended up leaving them out because they're, you know, if you ask who they are, somebody else can tell you that they're an archivist, they're not a religionist. But what the, I mean, the case is that nobody is identified as a historian of religion or a religionist. Partly that's our fault. We have no easily identifiable transferable job title from university to university, nor even a place at a university that's, that we consistently be found. So uh, that was just that way in the representations. too. We had to kind of make decisions along the way and narrow it down. Yeah, with the very notable exception, and tell me if I'm getting ahead of things here, of Emily Dumont in Black Tapes, right? I think she's one of the, just a handful, maybe three or four, who was actually introduced as a professor of religious studies. Then it turns mm -hmm. out what she does. It's not really it's not really like what professors of religious studies do at all, but um, she's one of few who actually gets that label attached to her. Excellent. Well, we can get to that. Um, so yeah, the Black Tapes is a, uh, a podcast that I unfortunately had never heard of when I read your article, but you do a good job of discussing it. So it'd be quite good for us on the Religious Studies Project podcast to discuss that. But I'll just also mention that I, um, I put out on Twitter last week that we were doing this, uh, we're doing this podcast and I, we got a couple of responses. You know, I asked what were your personal favorites and bugbears. So, um, uh, Richard Newton at the University of Alabama said that he likes uh, Professor Jamal in Muslim, that's M-O-Z-L-U-M, said that there is an emphasis on good questions over simple answers, imbrication of race and religion, an examination of the insider-outsider problem. And then another um, character that you discuss is in the Hulu series, The Path. What came back, um, we had Tyler Tully saying that he really enjoyed the path on Hulu and their inclusion of the religious studies scholar, particularly their treatment of emerging religious traditions. But then Joel Bordeaux said the religion professor on the path is probably the worst he's ever seen. Invited a guest to, uh, invited as a guest to a class and openly deriding their tradition, conducting secret sexual relationships with research subjects, deliberately intervening in communities he's studying and so on. Um, so you might want to respond to some of that and then maybe let's tell us about, um, Emily Dumont. Well, I think, yeah, Emily Dumont is interesting. I do want to talk about Jackson Neal from the path. Actually, it's one of the best examples and it came very late in this project, which was, I mean, I was, I was watching the show. I said, now I have to go back and rewrite a large part of this. And I did, <laughs> but 
Emily Dumont. So the Black Tapes is a uh, it's a podcast. It's sort of like a, the X Files. It's told in the story in, in the style of a true crime sort of uh, serial type podcast where they're investigating supposedly true occurrences and the characters are meant to be real people. Uh, so it blurs the line between fiction and um and uh, reality and, and journalism. But they interview people and they interview a religious study scholar named Emily. You know, this Emily Dumont. I do get mixed up. There's a lot of these. She is uh, uh, specifically interested in demonology, right? She's described as very informally dressed, sort of like a. She's I've described her as an overgrown high school freshman with a Ramones T-shirt and a funky haircut, <laughs> and sort of irreverent. And also speaking about chemtrails, which is a strange conspiracy theory about air travel or something. I don't really understand it, but it was bizarre. X-Files type stuff, and it was put in the mouth of a religious studies professor. Elsewhere on that same podcast, there's a different religious studies professor who openly derides her as a crank, even though she's in a university and he's not, who takes a really hard-nosed, scientific, some would say a kind of a reductivist view of, uh, of religion and that his job is to disprove miracles, a pretty common theme, that um, the job is either to disprove religion or to become a leader of a religion. But in the case of Emily Dumont, she's marginalized as someone who's sort of a joke. Uh, and that's, that was a little, a little uh, disconcerting. And I think that a podcast like that, you're likely to have people who went to college, audience who went to college and somewhere along the way had a class. So I feel like this person seems to me that was drawn from some experience of some professor, some wacky religious studies professor. I mean, that was my read on it. What did you think, Chris? I think that's possible, but I also think that podcast is doing something really odd in that it's conflating paranormal studies, paranormal um, activity with religion in a wholesale, non-nuanced way. Because we do have this Emily Dumont character who's very childlike, who's very gullible, who represents one possibility, right? The person who's involved in religious studies and the paranormal because of naivete, let's say. But then there's the other character, Richard Strand, who is very skeptical, very reductive. He's not a religious studies professor, but he was a religious studies major, we are told. So we have these two extremes, both attached to the field of religious studies. But then, and I should say, I only managed to listen to the first half dozen or so episodes before it became too scary for me. (laughs) Um, They were interesting and then it was too scary and I couldn't continue. But throughout those first few episodes, we get other characters being brought in who were also sort of oddly attached to religion. For example, one character who is described as being, and I'm pretty much quoting here, what theologians would call a biblical demonologist. As far as I know, there is no such thing as biblical demonology, though I'm not a theologian, so maybe there is, and I just don't know. Maybe, but that's what I mean when I say that it's as though the paranormal and religious studies are just completely layered on top of one another in this show, or podcast rather, in some ways that are kind of interesting, in some ways that are really bizarre, and there doesn't really seem to be any explanation, at least in the first half dozen episodes, of why that's the case or how those particular choices are being made. So yes, maybe there's something very specific going on in that one of the creators had a professor that Dumont is, you know, uh, modeled upon, but maybe there's something else happening, which is just that 
it's a it's a podcast dealing with sort of odd supernatural paranormal stuff and there's nowhere else that it makes sense to house that other than the religious studies I mean, it's odd yeah. because it, it would have been 10 years ago a parapsychologist. I mean, they used to have those in movies all the time, the people that investigated hauntings and psychic phenomena. So, I mean, in, the Ghostbusters have are Ghostbusters, uh, Ghostbusters sure. They're in a parapsychology lab. They're doing Zener cards. So what happened to that, I don't know. But why it became religion <laughs> here. But nothing recognizable as religion is ever studied. Now, that said, I was inspired to teach a class on religion and the paranormal, and it became the most popular class that I teach because of that. <laughs> I'm seeing these movies. And so Absolutely. That, that's good, I guess. And and some people do write about it. We mentioned that in the article, too. There's a new sort of a newish wave of books dealing with religious experience and paranormal from different angles. And Taves, uh, Jeff Kripal, from really different yeah. points of view. Yeah. So there is some of that, but I don't think anybody knew that as they're making these characters, right? I think that's coincidental or part of a larger zeitgeist. Exactly. Um, I'm just keen that we keep pressing on because, um, yeah. you know, I do want to get Jackson Neal, but we've got to get to, we've got to get to the Da Vinci Code and everything before. So maybe quickly, um, so in your, in your article, I think you were saying that um, Jackson Neal, although he may uh, not be the most uh, uh, moral, morally upright of scholars in that sense, actually what he's doing perhaps maybe quite closely um, resembles what we would consider the study of religion. Well, he's an Americanist, just like Kristen, which is why I pointed him out to her very early on. I mean, he's doing a kind of ethnography, which is what she does. But what he does that she doesn't do, as far as I know, is get on major talk shows advertising his book. <laughs> <laughs> no, just this. This is my 15 minutes of fame right here. <laughs> but uh, then he has a sexual relationship with his informant. He inserts himself in the life of this religious studies movement, which is uniformly re um, new religious movement, which is uniformly referred to as a cult throughout the uh, TV series. All sorts of things that... Um, Seems like he would have had to go through IRB to do, but had no problem doing that. He's eventually sort of discredited and they turn against him. But it's so realistic that it almost feels like if this is something that people would believe represents the study of religion in the academy. And and it does in, this is in the sense that we do that kind of work. We do talk to people about their experiences. But what we don't do is try and undermine some tradition with an expose. And I think another thing that's important about that character is that one of the tropes we identified in a lot of these representations is a thread of hypocrisy. So, yeah, maybe he's a good scholar. Maybe he's doing actual scholarly work that resembles what an Americanist and an ethnographer might do. But then he's got this potentially sort of shady sexual stuff going on. I am hard pressed to think of a depiction of, say, I don't know, a math professor, right, where there is a plot that has to do with shady sexual behavior, whereas it comes up over and over and over again in these religious studies characters, as though as though people using these characters are doing it in order to sort of identify a hypocrisy that's inherent to studying religion. Mm, which would scan with my um, intuition anyway. Um Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, the Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception. 
Um, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash projectsrs and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help... Um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website. It would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Um, just so that we can absolutely get to it, you, you discuss then how a lot of these characters can sometimes end up in a sort of um, pathetic, heroic spectrum. Um, you've got your your sort of um, nerdy, weedy scholar working away, pale-faced and not much interest in real life. And then you've got the Indiana Joneses running around there, dashing, wonderful knowledge. Uh, and, and so you, you, you set up this um, comparison um, really well uh, in the article between um, the Reverend Casavan from um, George Eliot's uh, Middlemarch and then Robert Langdon from Dan Brown's um, books, um, Angels and Demons, Da Vinci Code and so on. I'm afraid it's been over a decade since I read Middlemarch, but it was nice uh, engaging with it um, again through your article. Um, and you maybe just for the next five minutes or so, brief introduction to these two characters and maybe sort of maybe set them up against each other and, you know, what the different models of the study of religion. Yeah, I'll start with Kasaban, who appears first in, of course, George Eliot's Middlemarch in the 19th century. Um, he is sort of the quintessential example of a dry, dusty, pedantic scholar who only cares about his books. As I mentioned earlier, he is doing work that's very recognizable as history of religions. He's trying to compile sort of a massive comparative mythology. We learn later on in the book that he doesn't actually have the language skills to do this, that he will never finish this sort of fruitless project. And most of the characters, ultimately pretty much all of the characters in the novel, think that he's ridiculous and think that he's so sort of intellectually obsessed that he's out of touch with real life. It compromises his virility. He doesn't deserve the love of the beautiful protagonist, so on and so forth. So he is pretty much a paradigmatic example of intellectual obsession that basically ruins everything else about him. And something interesting we noticed as we were thinking about his character is that even in more recent and contemporary updates, where other characters are treated somewhat differently and more sympathetically, Kasaba never is. So, for example, there's a very recent YouTube series that is updating Middlemarch. It's, you know, young, attractive students on a college campus, and many of them are socially awkward in some way, but still endearing. Whereas Kasaban, who is now in this rendering a graduate student working on some completely abstruse dissertation topic that would probably fit in philosophy of religion, for example, is still a really unpleasant character. There's still this linkage between his intellectual obsession and unpleasantness. No one likes him. He is unlikable because he is sort of a a sham scholar, let's say. That is, he's obsessed with his intellectual project, but he doesn't really have the skills to do it successfully. So weak, mm -hmm. pathetic, unlikable, all of these adjectives continue to attach to him, even in contemporary updates. 
Yeah. And uh, on a surface level, your gut reaction is that that's going to be quite, that's quite different to the uh, character in Dan Brown's work, who we see portrayed in on film by Tom Hanks, who's, I don't know, America's, if not the world's most loved actor in some ways, you know, um, that's quite a different character, but not so different, I believe. Right. I mean, you know, it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like Tom Hanks. I mean, he's like the Jimmy Stewart of our generation. He's much beloved. And uh, and he plays this guy. But one thing that's interesting about him that's the same, there's a lot of them that's different, which I'll talk about in a minute, but it's the sexual aspect. I mean, I think that Kasabon is really um, a neutered character, right? He has no sexual drive, no sexual energy associated with him. He's seen as a sort of a dried up old husk of a person. Whereas Langdon has a different kind of asceticism in that, you know, it, it, the, Dan Brown uses the term good, clean fun. Like this is it's all about good, clean fun, which means that Indiana Jones has a different female love interest in every movie that they have a will, mm-hmm. they won't they. And of course they will. But in all of the movies based on the Da Vinci Code books, I mean, you know, the, the books about Robert Langdon, his female lead is not in any kind of a, romantic relationship they don't even have a handshake uh it's, mm. it's the most chaste hero heroine relationship one can possibly imagine in one in the first book she's the descendant of jesus christ which is a meaningless thing anyway to think about 2000 years of generational history but it's someone who you can't imagine having sex with someone on a movie or on screen right yeah. it, it's a very he's a, also a very sort of consciously non-sexual de-eroticized uh, character, unlike, you know, the ones we talked about before. But what he does is really instructive. I mean, I think that nobody has done more to get the study of religion uh, in the public consciousness than Dan Brown, the Catholic reaction to that to those books, um, this sort of revival of interest in conspiracy theories about the Illuminati and what have you. I mean, it really never really went away, but it certainly got more and that was what mm-hmm. became the shorthand for study of religion is studying the secret conspiracies behind all the fakeness of religion. And that's what he does. Uh, but what he, everything he says about religion is, is nonsense. And we also learn that he's not even the person who teaches religion studies. That's somebody else at Harvard who we never meet. But he has this particularly narrow focus on religious symbology without any explanation of what a symbol is. And mistaking symbols, ciphers, and codes for each other. It's a very thinly researched book, right? I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. work on the conspiracies, but as far as what he's doing, what we see him doing in classrooms, what we see him talking about, what passes in his dialogue as profound knowledge, I mean, that Feast of Soul Invictus has something to do with Christmas, blows everybody's mind, uh, is, is really speaks to the depth of ignorance about the study of religion, which is, I think, an indictment, really, for me, anyway. If, if this just goes over without without a ripple, then uh, how have we not established in any meaningful way what we do in the classroom, what we do in our books? Mm, indeed, yeah, and someone else uh, pointed out that one of the biggest errors, perhaps, in the portrayal is the, the completely full lecture hall that <laughs> he's teaching mm-hmm. to of attentive right. students. The bottomless <laughs> budget that he has. So, I mean, we could go into in-depth on these characters and obviously we direct the listeners to 
um, your article, which we'll link to from the podcast page to, to get really into the, the analysis of them. But towards the end of the article, you ask through this comparison exercise, like what kind of picture have you formed of the, the fictional religious studies scholar? Um, and then also um, about what emerges about religion as an object of study. So perhaps using um, the examples that we've discussed thus far, could you tell us a little bit about what we can say about the generic fictional religious studies scholar in a nutshell and maybe how religions conceive? Well, the one thing that's it's, um, interesting about, about the Robert Landing character is that he's the only one that gives us a real definition of what religion is as an object of study. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'll just quote from the book. The book is actually in, it's in the Lost Symbol, which is a later book in the series. And he says to his class, this is in our, we've closed that in the article too. So tell me, what are the three prerequisites for an ideology to be considered a religion? A, B, C, one woman offered, assure, believe, convert. Correct, Langdon said. Religions assure salvation. Religions believe in a precise theology. And religions convert non-believers. It's a self-evident to him and to everyone else in the class wrote definition of religion is not very useful to me it has nothing to do with symbols interestingly which seems to, which to him is the is the foundation of the study of religion as he does it uh, but mm-hmm. it does uh, give you a very pat definition of what religion is and assure believe and convert are all sort of these verbs that that apply control over a crowd over a group over minds is a very cynical and, and of course uh, one-dimensional, or I guess three-dimensional technically, but thin uh, definition of religion. And it's the only one we really get. The question of what religion is never comes up for anybody, which is in, in considering the amount of ink that we've spilled over the last 50 years trying to figure out what that is, that does not translate into the, uh, into the representations as we have them. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that all we have is this very thin, superficial, reductive definition which might well be a definition that works well for some religion scholars. I find it a bit odd, um, but that's just me. Because it seems to me that what religious studies does best is sort of the opposite of the thin and superficial, right? And nowhere in this examination of characters do we see anyone who's doing sort of the thick work of religious studies, right? So, well, what is religion? A sure believe control, is that what it was? Something like that. Um, so then what is religious studies? As Brian says, it's this very simplistic endeavor that has to do with uh, recognizing a very simplistic dynamic at play. In other words, in these depictions, we don't see religious studies scholarship as being about critical empathy. We don't see it as being about rigorous analysis, right? We don't see it as being about robust comparison, which to my mind are the things that it does best and the things that it can help students to do best. So we get not only a wild misrepresentation of what religion is, that is, it's always about you know, coerced conversion and that sort of thing. It's always about shadowy mystery and espionage. But we also get, a, a, I think, very unfair misrepresentation of what religious studies um, is doing and by that same token is not doing. Mm. Well, the flip side of what you're saying there, the Casabank character there, we would have uh, religious studies being the sort of dry study of texts and the very esoteric um, at search for some sort of 
higher knowledge that is sort of beyond relevance to the social world. So it's either something that's a sort of irrelevant, bookish, um, and not of interest, or something that's sort of swashbuckling and uncovering of conspiracies and um, you know, releasing people from coercive control. And, and neither of which are, uh, are very accurate depictions of what any of us do. Or ghost hunting. Sometimes it's about ghost hunting. Don't forget. But yeah. yes, included in none of those things is there the sort of very important skills that religious studies, when done well, actually can and should inculcate. Well, what you also find is Casabon uh, is a textual scholar, a clear-cut textual scholar, and I would expected that to sort of hold through time, but increasingly they're not textual scholars, even though we think that's what we all are and that's sort of something to overcome. I mean, that's kind of the critique to text-based, whatever. But mostly they're going into cults or they are uh, talking to believers and usually believers who are um, radical in some way. And, and, and so they tend to be out in the field looking at miraculous events and um, bizarre beliefs, as they sort of characterize them, more than they are reading books or comparing. Comparing is the one thing that's almost never done, except for with Langdon, mm-hmm. and it's a very weird kind of comparison. But from the, outside of him, uh, there is almost no comparison. It's just studying the one thing that's their dissertation topic, that's their tenure, that's going to fill up their tenure portfolio, or that's their, usually their personal dark obsession. The drives mm-hmm. them to becoming serial killers often. So we we are over time here, um, which is fine because we're going to get to wrapping up. But as, as I would say, listeners, do check out the article where you can hear a lot of this stuff that we're just skimming over um, in a lot more detail. But the, my my final two questions I wanted to to throw out would be: What can we do about these portrayals? So it, it's it's a similar thing in the, with the media, for example. Um, a lot of my colleagues and I are always moaning about, oh, well, the media never really get things right about religion. It's terrible. It's awful. But I never really hear solutions. What can we do about the portrayal of religion in the media? So what potentially could we do about the uh, portrayal of religious studies in, well, here, popular culture or, or, or beyond? Any suggestions based upon your thinking about this? I'll, I'll try this one. Um, public scholarship could be an important mitigation here. You know, the, the extent to which actual religious studies scholars are doing the actual work of religious studies in a way that can be seen by the public. That could be one mitigating force against these sort of wild misrepresentations that we have. I, mean, I feel like that it starts with students. I mean, we come, come into contact with a lot of students over the course of our careers. And it's not just religious studies. I think they're often um, don't ever figure out what any of the faculty members do most of the time because we don't talk about it ever. It's sort of opaque uh, for some reason. So I think talking to students about our work, about our interests, about how we got interested in it, I think it's useful. I think it's helpful. I think it um, clarifies things. Uh, it, it makes our position clear. And we can do that on a small level. More, I, mean, I think we could all, all everybody in the academy better engage with their students about who they are and what they do and how they're compensated, et cetera. But uh, I think we could especially do that. Now, the interesting thing is, over the time I was writing this article, there we, we had the affair of uh, Reza Aslan, 
here in the States mm. who had a rise as the first real a rise to power, a rise to prominence as the first real public intellectual in religious studies, only to be fired pretty quickly for making a comment on Twitter about President Trump after a few uh, a few episodes of his show, Believer, which was widely derided by scholars of religion, as was his book about Jesus. Uh, what's it called? Zealot. So here we have a sort of failed, a missed opportunity to have a public intellectual present, you know, model this kind of work. But that doesn't mean that has to be the last time we try that. I think that maybe mm. that that's the that's the place to start. Uh, you know, a, a plot where you save the Pope from a um, a radical uh, Catholic assassin is going to be more interesting than a plot where you you know translate a text. But uh, it doesn't have to be about plot. It can be about you know, the, what the old the stuff that they used to do on the BBC, uh, where they had you know long running, uh, long form sort of shows to educate the public in a way that is also engaging. Um, I think that can be done again. Yeah. And you know maybe if you're uh, burning the midnight oil, we could all be uh, you know writing those novels, writing those screenplays uh, that we that we all wish we were seeing. Um, is is this it for you with this project then, or or do you have plans for um, future research, future publications? What's what's next for you? I think Chris is writing the screenplay based on the article. That's right. Look for the screenplay. Just kidding. Not really. No, I am developing a class on religion and pop culture, and a lot of this stuff um, sort of feeding the mill for that. Well, I think that the natural next place to go would be uh, a panel at the AAR, bringing more people to talk about it. Uh, and I, I, that seems to me like uh, like something. And I don't know if we need another article anytime soon, but I think that a bigger conversation, a public conversation about it at the at our annual meeting here would be helpful. Excellent. And well, hopefully this podcast and your article um, will um kick off a bit more of that conversation and we can uh, look forward to a future where the discipline the field um is is represented a bit more accurately but uh, for now uh thank you so much brian and christine it's been wonderful having you thank you thanks chris it was great to hear that interview again um and i should mention that the article that was forthcoming at the time of recording um has now been published so do check out the podcast page for details on the article. Uh, wonderful to hear from them. And um, that interview was recorded using uh, another tool uh, called Collaborate. So we're, we're really using a lot of different um, online recording tools, seeing which ones work better than Skype. Indeed. Um, not that it would be hard to work better than Skype, in all honesty. It's... Uh, Burn. Yes. Well, you know, it's fine for some things, but for recording quality anyway. So this this is an experiment in us being able to record when we're not in the same time, which I suspect is going to happen increasingly often in the near future. But it's also something that we've been using to record some additional material for the Patreon patrons, if that's the right way of putting it. Yeah. Um, you, um, David, had a conversation with uh, Carol Cusack, for example, which went up um, fairly recently. We called that. RSP, are you my data? And it was a sort of chance to ask Carol Cusack anything and everything under the sun. It was an excellent conversation. And then we also recorded uh, the first episode of our 
RSP discourse. Indeed, that was a lot of fun with Brianne Fallon from Sydney as a guest. And we're intending to as um, record at least one of these a month with a different um, different guests. It won't always be me and Chris. We're hoping to get other editors involved in recording these. And the idea is that it's the RSP take on a kind of current affairs thing. Um, so, you know, how do you apply the critical approach that we use to um, how religion's being used in the media and in the news and sometimes in the field as well. Um, so go and check that out. If you haven't um, got access to it, if you're not a patron yet, it only costs $1 or £1 a month um, and you won't even notice that. You can't even get into town for that much on the bus. So do consider signing up. You also get access to each of our episodes in a classroom edit which means that it doesn't have this intro for a start. It doesn't have the adverts or the Patreon adverts or anything else. It's just goes straight to the interview, and that's designed for you to use in the classroom. Absolutely. And uh, don't fear, listeners, uh, we aren't going to start charging for the RSP. Um, Everything that we've continued to offer for free up till now, that's the regular podcast, the Ops Digest, all the features, the other things on our website, our social media feeds, that's all. They're generously supported by our headline sponsors. But we thought um, there's some more interesting things that we can do. And uh, we, we'd like to sort of give something back to those individuals and uh, departments who've, who've signed up for a sort of special Patreon. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's a chance for us to try out some new formats as well. And, you know, it's just the next stage in where we're going exactly um next week um you're probably fed up hearing interviews from me there's going to be quite a few of them over the coming weeks but we've got an interview that ross downing recorded with us with our edinburgh colleague anya warren about um her research into the dark goddess so it's called a dark goddess an interreligious language for feminine spirituality and that was recorded in belfast at the isasser basr joint conference and we're delighted that ross uh, recorded a few interviews for us um, and uh, sort of took his, put his own spin onto it. So we're delighted to have um, something a bit different. Absolutely. And we, we recorded some other interviews there, which will be coming up in uh, later in the year, including our Christmas special. Um, so, you know, stay tuned as ever. We've, we've got a lot of interviews recorded, actually, at this point, unusually so. So it's looking like it's going to be a great run. Um, but anyway, we've wittered on enough. Uh, uh, f- until next week, Chris, let's try and do it together. All right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget you can support the project using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash project rs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.